0: Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. When it comes to nonprofit work, there are many ways to give back. Volunteering, serving on a board, raising funds, or donating your time. Each role requires a specific skill set. But where does a person turn to to get started? My guest today, Certified Fundraising Executive, Diane Lebson, is the saving grace when it comes to the philanthropic world. Diane offers the ultimate guide for volunteers and activists alike to help them navigate the day-to-day activities associated with doing good through philanthropy in her book, which is called For a Good Cause, which published in October of 2021 and has already been named Amazon's number one new release in the volunteer work category. Diane, welcome to Brand on Purpose.
1: Thanks, Erin. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for such a flattering introduction. I've never been called a saving grace before. I love it.
0: (laughs) Well, maybe I can embarrass you some more even though this is, well, we're not really video recording this, but we can see each other virtually in our little virtual studio here. What our listeners don't know and what I did not mention in the upfront is that I think we met when we were, I know I was probably 17, you might have been 18. We might have both been 18 because we both went to George Washington University. And I feel like this is a full circle conversation for the two of us and unintentional, right? So the person at book, I think it's called booksforward.com reached out to our mailbox, probably not letting you know that they're pitching this show. And that person did not know that we go back so far back to our university days and we first met volunteering. And you can't make this up, right? You were, I think, part of the Panhellenic Council. I was part of the Interfraternity Council. I know sororities and fraternities aren't so popular today. But back then, it was a major mechanism for giving. And you and I, I think very early on, always wanted to live a life where there was more than just education, but there's also like a greater calling for civic duty. And we did that in our late teens. And it's just so amazing to be able to see you and talk about it full circle when we're in our 30s now. Okay, maybe add a few, couple, maybe add a couple Here decades. Two. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So it's just so great to see you. And it's such a pleasant surprise having that email come into my inbox for you to be not just a guest, but a very longstanding friend who, again, you know, this is so true that we met volunteering. So I really appreciate you coming on the show.
1: No, oh, it's, it's great to be here. And it's really funny because to extend the conversation as well. I remember reaching out to you maybe a year or two ago because I had this crazy memory of you and I trying to form a nonprofit organization at the wise age of 21. What was that organization? Didn't it do something around youth mentoring? And didn't we reach out to, like, Lamar Alexander to be on our board and mentor us a lot? Remember that? Remember all of those questions, mistakes, and stuff that we did at 21? Wow. Wow. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Lamar Alexander, who I guess was probably the Secretary of Education at the time, and I don't know if he was governor of Tennessee before or after that, I could be getting this wrong. I do vaguely remember that. And it seems as though your passion for giving and giving back never, ever waned since then. So fast forward, we won't so many how many decades later, but you've held major senior positions with incredibly Prestigious nonprofit global organizations like the Red Cross and United Way. You've done so much for the women's movement. So, why write a book and why now?
1: Thanks for asking that. So, I wrote the book because I was working with so many women who were asking the same question over and over and over again How do I find a cause that really resonates with my values? I've been asked to serve on a board. What exactly does that mean? Somebody's asked me to cheer a gala. What am I supposed to do? I hate asking people for money, but how can I do that in a way that really resonates with me and is authentic? And there are no books out there on that. You can't Google, you can try to piece things together, but there's no one stop place to find all that information. So I wrote the book, and I wrote the book with a great deal of humility. It's not that, oh, I am so wise, I have all of, all of this information. It's that there are a lot of amazing people in this space who have made mistakes, who have done some incredible things, who are willing to share their stories. So the real core and foundation of the book, Erin, are the interviews that I did, women who founded different organizations, Fortune 50 CEOs who got involved with a really good cause. People who got pulled into something because of family circumstances. So I really owe a lot to the women who I interviewed for this book.
0: You talk about how being able to volunteer and participate in things that are greater than you come in many forms. You can be a board member. You know. You can be a volunteer. You can help fundraise. Can you just kind of go through those basic roles, if you will. And I know there are many of them, but like the major ones, because again, going back to everything's coming kind of full circle on the show, we talked to so many people, authors, activists, philanthropists, people who have built incredible organizations that sit at the intersection of profit and purpose, B Corps. I mean, you name it, right? And what we haven't yet done is kind of walked through the mechanics of how to land that plane. You know, so the goal of the podcast is to inspire people to do more, either inside their organization, create their own organization, or just personally in life, right? And to give back. But what we haven't done until this very moment is given them a resource or a guide on how to get started and where to get started. So maybe if you can briefly describe what those major kind of roles could be. And then also, how do you find what you're most interested in? Many of us are interested in so many different topics, so many different causes. We have so many different passions. You know, if I could, I would be spending my entire days, especially if I had the resources to do it, just giving back, just working for so many causes that I love. But if you could also address, how do you refine that and make sure that, you know, you do great work, maybe potentially focused on fewer things versus spreading yourself too thin and then not making as much of an impact as you had hoped for, even though your intentions are good. So, there's a lot there, a lot there, but I there so I is a lot kinda, there. So, yeah,
1: keep me on target here. So, let's go through the roles first. I think for a lot of people, the gateway to charity is the role of volunteer. You see a posting someplace asking for volunteers. I was just talking to a girlfriend today who this weekend will be working at Wreath Across America, where they're posting wreaths on the tombstones at Arlington Cemetery. She got involved because one of her friends had said it would be a good idea. That's the way that a lot of people get involved. A family member, a friend, sees something, invites you to come along. And it's really the hands-on activity where you're actually serving meals, putting wreaths on tombstones, helping build a playground. That usually starts as a one-time transaction and might develop into a longer-term relationship over time. So that's generally the most basic opportunity. And interesting, there's been a lot of research done by Giving USA, by Indiana University has a school on philanthropy. And well over half of all Americans volunteer at some point doing something over the course of the year, even during the pandemic. So role of volunteer is the most basic one. Second one is the role of donor. And a lot of us are feeling that this time of year, if you go to your mailbox and all of this snow, you know, the snowflakes of invitations come in and invite you to make donations to different philanthropies. And you could be the type of donor who goes through each of those uh, solicitations, writes a check and do that. That's one way to do it. Or you may be someone who might think through very intentionally. What is it that really matters to me? And how am I going to invest in that cause? And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Then there's the role of board member. Say perhaps you've been volunteering for an organization for a while, have a sustained relationship, or perhaps you've been giving to a cause for a good long time. And somebody says, hey, we're looking for somebody to help guide the direction of the organization moving forward. You've got a strategic thought. We need some people to help oversee the financials, the strategic vision for where the organization is going. And that's usually a time-delimited opportunity, maybe two or three years. You meet maybe once a month, and you provide guidance to the organization. So there's donor, volunteer, board member. Last, and that's probably where I spent most of my time, is in the role of being a nonprofit executive. So this is where you get compensated for the good work you do largely in fundraising, public relations, strategic planning, a lot of this stuff where you're able to really devote your time in your career towards a good cause. So those are the four general roles. Erin, have you encountered any others that I'm missing?
0: No, those are the main ones. And of course, oftentimes, all those, many of those roles, maybe three out of four, if you're not an organizational founder, you know, overlap, right? Because you can be a volunteer, a board member, and a donor, which is often the case. If you're a board member, you're probably also a volunteer for that organization in certain capacities. And you're also probably somebody who donates that organization. And I want to drill down, if you don't mind, just for a second, on the board member one. That is where I think, I mean, look, in all those capacities, you can make an impact, right? I do think In my own experience, having served on so many different nonprofit boards now, both ones that are community oriented as ones that are professionally oriented, and I don't know how to say no, it's a big problem. I guess I could think of worse problems. I just don't know how to say no to these things. When you're a board member, one of the things that we miss as presidents of boards or heads of boards is not training people on how to be a good board member and what is it like? And part of that training isn't just functional or role-oriented. It is that. But it's also making sure, and maybe this has to happen before we recruit people to boards, that they're going to see shit that's going to cause a little bit of discomfort, right? You know, really good boards have to tackle really tough issues. And as a board member, you're going to be party to and privy to some messy stuff, sometimes it's HR stuff, sometimes there are crises and issues. And as a member of an organization, any organization, you don't see that. You're shielded from it because all that hard work is done behind closed doors with best efforts. Talk a little bit about how we bring people over the wall to say, we know you you love and care about this organization. Otherwise, you wouldn't want to do more. But just know that when you're on the inside of the onion, it could make you cry and you need to learn how to compartmentalize, basically.
1: Well, you do and you don't. The biggest mistake I've seen smart business people make is leaving their business acumen outside of the nonprofit door. They really want to be the cheerleaders for the chief executive. They want to feel good about it. But you're absolutely right, Erin. You're dealing with messy stuff. I've served on a board where we've had to fire the executive. It is not pretty. It's hard. You get angry. You get frustrated. But the most important thing that any of us as business leaders can do is make sure that we are asking the hard questions and understanding that our role as board member is not to be the cheerleader all the time, but to really review those financial statements. And if there's anything that we don't understand, ask why. If there's a chief executive who is making decisions that don't seem to be really aligned with mission- ask why. Ask the hard questions. A board meeting is not a pep rally. A board meeting is an opportunity for board members to really share their insights, to make sure that the organization is not myopic in making the best interests on behalf of the clients that they serve and the donors who invest in them. That's absolutely right. But I actually do want to get back to a question that you had asked earlier because you've talked about your personal problem of not being able to say no. I've got that problem too. It's gotten me into a lot of trouble with my husband, my family. And the one thing that I'm really learning to do is leveraging my no so that my yes means a whole lot more. So what does that mean? Because you and I could probably spend our entire days doing great things. People are clamoring for you to serve on boards. People are doing the same thing of me. And... What helps me really think about where am I going to invest my time, talent, and treasure and energy and all of that, right now, I was thinking about what really gets me angry? What is it that gets me so emotionally riled up that I just can't keep it in? Is it social injustice? Is it women's issues? And that's where I want to focus because a lot of people are going to be asking us to support them. I can't keep on writing $50 checks because I'm just sprinkling little bits and pieces here. Rather, if I consolidate and think about what is it that I'm really passionate about, focus my time towards doing that, focusing my checkbook towards doing that, I know that I can make a greater impact.
0: Yeah, I like that. Well, it's interesting because during a certain presidency in a certain year, rage donations were up significantly to certain organizations like Planned Parenthood and the ACLU And while I appreciated the pop and donations, especially just so happened that they had coincided with things I care about, part of me is also like, wow, I hope this isn't just a pop and that there's some sustained momentum behind not just the donations themselves, but the efforts to communicate, to educate, to share knowledge. And we're in this moment right now where, I mean, a lot makes us angry. Well, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just an angry person, but there's so much that makes me angry. And I can't even start listing it now other than the fact that we're in this moment where I think our vaccination rate in the U.S. is 60%, percent six zero for total vaccinations, which means 40% of the Americans, that we so good at math, right? Americans have not been vaccinated because of either fear, misinformation, disinformation. There are 12 organizations actually that are driving 90% of the disinformation Around vaccines and creating more and more vaccine hesitancy, ultimately leading to more death. And we're about to hit our, we have almost 800,000 Americans dead now from COVID 19. And that's probably not the right number. It's probably greater than that because it's hard to really know, right? So, in a moment where I'm angry about so many things, how do you figure out what to be most angry about. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Prioritize your anger. Well, it's also about being strategic because a lot of people will get angry and do a transaction to an organization, be it Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, or whatever it is. The most important thing that a philanthropist can do is have a plan about giving and involve your entire family or looking at it from as being part of your business. For example, Eric and I, my husband and I, each year, have a family meeting and we talk about the things that are most important to us. We've allocated a budget of how much money we're going to give. And we think about the top three things that either make us most angry or about which we're most passionate. And what we find is that, yeah, you know, we're angry about this, we're angry about that, but that might just be a blip in time. If rather we were to talk about our entire family and you've got two kids, you know, you've got tests. think about as a collective where you could channel that energy into a meaningful, impactful activity as a collective. You could really be more effective with your anger. And I think that anger is actually a good thing, provided that you're able to prioritize and think strategically about how you're going to use that anger as an energy for good.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's fair, I really do. I do suppose that for those of us who consume a lot of information, that's my other addiction, I'm sure it's yours as well, it can get a little harried. And look, I've seen this with my own clients over the years, right? I feel like their intent is right, but they're putting so many dollars across so many different things. The impact isn't as great as if they said, instead of donating to, we're focusing on 74 charities globally, what if we just focused on three and one has to do with, I don't know, equity or, you know, equality and belonging. One has to do with children's health. One has, you know, so I think not just individuals, but corporations and companies also struggle with focus and priority and prioritization. What have you seen as somebody who held very senior roles at the Red Cross and at United Way, and United Way I know is deeply involved with corporates, Right. What advice do you have for leaders and what have you seen works best to focus corporations on doing more with maybe a few being more intentional with a fewer issues versus being, you know, well intended with so many issues, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that corporations need to be honest about why they're engaging in certain endeavors and not to take on too many things because it is the the anger du jour, if you look at how many people are really asking questions right now about all of the money that was dumped into the, or all of the commitments, I should say, not even money, all of the pledges that were made into the social justice space after the George Floyd murder, people are starting to look and say, what's happening? Are we really making a difference or an impact? I would really encourage corporations to think through, don't invest in the thing that's of the moment. Think about what is aligned and associated with your overall business. For example, look at Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola has a strong reason to ensure that there's clean water because if they don't have clean water, Their product is going to be impacted. So that seems to make a whole lot of sense with regards to making sure that whatever philanthropic thing you're doing is aligned with your brand. And some people might look at that cynically and go, well, that's going to make their business better and it's going to help them generate more revenue. I don't think that that's a bad idea. I think that when you divide your time and you divide your energies into too many things and you fall away from what is your core in your focus, you are giving your power, your energy, and your agency away. And that's a bad thing. Think about what is core to who you are as a brand, as a culture, and focus on that.
0: So you're, you're touching on a very hot topic for me, which is this notion of when and how and where do brands have permission to lean in on certain things versus are they doing that just because it is of the moment, or because they're being told to, or because they know they could monetize that moment. And let me give you a couple of examples. So both positive and negative, like, I've never been a fan of Nike, and the way they, I think, market through activism, because I don't really believe them. Maybe it's just me, I don't think that they really do care in their bones about equality and equity. I feel like they use people like Colin Kaepernick and they made billions and billions and billions of dollars off that initial campaign. And as far as I could tell, they never gave a dollar of that back or much of it back to underserved communities. So that's Nike, right? And then on the other hand, you look at Ben and Jerry's, right? So Ben and Jerry's, look, social issues have nothing to do with ice cream, zero. You would think maybe if you follow the formula that Ben and Jerry's would focus on issues around nutrition and health, diabetes, obesity, all things that like, I love ice cream. I love Ben and Jerry's and I love what they do. But if you only held companies to the standard of they need to have quote unquote permission because it's related to their business, then that would also be bad. Right? So my feeling, and this is just, my own kind of individual opinion is that companies like Ben & Jerry's, I think it's fine for them to tackle tough social issues because what they've done is they've done it from day one. They've committed deeply, deeply to it and their business follows their ethics, their decisioning, whether or not you agree with it or not. You know, They've gotten themselves into hot water as well, most recently with Israel, right? So all these things kind of, there's no one answer and it's not linear, I guess is what I'm saying, right?
1: It's true, but I think the... Core to what you're getting at is this notion of authenticity. You cited the Nike example because it doesn't feel authentic to you. I'm just thinking about organizations who have done that well. And I'll, I'm even thinking about my own self when I lean into something. So I was with an organization at one point and we were really stinking when it comes to DEIB. And I was trying to move forward in this space, and I wanted to recruit someone who could help us in that effort. This person was the chief diversity officer for a Fortune 50 corporation. He did what anyone in that position would do. He looked at our board and said, would I be the first black guy on this? And I said, absolutely you are, but let me tell you why I need you. And I came clean, it was completely transparent. He's like, the fact that you came completely clean with regards to your struggles on this means that you're taking the first step towards being really committed. Don't, excuse the term, don't whitewash, you know, the truth. Be honest about who you are. And in the case of Nike, if they're catching the moment, people see through that. But I think that for most people who are really intentional about how they value and Repute organizations, they want that authenticity. And sometimes that authenticity requires organizations to say, yeah, we suck, but we're trying to do better.
0: Yeah. One of the things that's been really upsetting to me lately, among many, (laughs) going back to what we said earlier, is so I had Jenna Arnold on the show. She was one of the organizers of the Women's March, the historic Women's March in 2017. She also wrote a book called Raising Our Hands. I don't know if you've read it, it's really, really good. By her own kind of description, it's really a book, especially for white women to get more involved in the world, right? And one of the things she talks about, and I know it's not a new concept, but it really stayed with me, is this notion of instead of calling people out, call them in. Because it is very easy to put like a flaming tweet out there, you know, or a LinkedIn post, just calling somebody out for something. Whereas it's harder to send them a direct message and say, hey, you know, what you just said made me think about a lot of different things. I'm not totally comfortable with it. I'd love to talk to you about it. I'd just like to have a discussion. But I'm not trying to make this discussion, you know, put it on a stage because I'm trying to increase my followers or my advertising or whatever it is. I want it because I think we can actually help each other and educate each other. Because you know what? You're probably a little right and a little wrong. And I'm probably a little right and a little wrong because no one's fully right. No one's fully wrong, always, right? It's kind of like what my rabbis always said there's good and bad in all of us. Whether or not we want to admit it, there is good and bad in all of us. It's how you react to that, is really kind of how you're judged and how you lead your life. I often, though, see again, I'll use LinkedIn as an example where a company will post efforts around DEIB or something they're doing that is incredible. And there's always someone who's like, well, that's interesting. You know, I don't notice any people of color on your management team. And what I want to do is write back and say identity and what you see are two different things. Number one, right? And that's a huge one. That's the one that is really like gnaws at me. And then the second thing I want to say is thanks for trying. Thanks for being open. Thanks for being vulnerable. Thanks for being transparent. Thanks for saying that, yes, we have more work to do. So how do you, and I come at this from a PR standpoint, I have my own thoughts, but how do you deal with these folks who are just constantly attacking and they they appear or pretend to be attacking for good reason when in fact what they're doing is, is shaming and canceling and it just sets us all back. And it's not the way I think to make amends or to move us forward together in the world.
1: I loved the way how you ended that and used the word amends. Because I think it is so easy for those of us who are in the public space, be it you with the podcast, twi- you know Twitter, and all of that, be it these corporations, even be it myself as just a regular Jill with a Facebook page trying to put joy out in the world. And I'll just say something really interesting that had happened to me a little while ago. I had put a post up there, which just to celebrate somebody who I thought had done something wonderful. And somebody had posted on there, oh, is this the person who helped fund the January 6th riots on Capitol Hill? And this person was mistaken. And a couple of people were trying to correct that, but they held to their, you know, they held to their assertion. And I think in that particular instance, you really have to think through what is your objective in communicating? You can look at it from a PR perspective. But I think it's really important to think about it in terms of authenticity and what you really need to do. Because there are certain people who are just trying to be flies in the ointment and really get under your skin. If you really want to make a difference, do as you said, send somebody a direct message and... Make sure that you try to set the record straight. But not everything has to be in the public square of trying to make it right. Because when you put things in the public square, that's when you lose control. That's when you lose control.
0: Yeah. And then part of me is like, God, does this person have anything else better to do with their time than just to create more problems, a more angry, uncivil discourse? I'm curious what you think about this. I do feel like we have gone over the edge of civil discourse. And I wonder in our lifetime, if we'll ever get back to having normal civil discourse when people don't agree, you know, it's possible, you know, it's just like, everything's so binary now you're either on the left or on the right, but why can't you be friends with left and right? And why is there a left and right? And why can't you be in the middle? Why can't you be for everyone? You know, I'm just wondering, do you think that we'll ever get to the point in our lifetime where we can get back to you know, having normal civil discourse, even though we might not agree on a topic?
1: Oh, good question. And that's something I've been trying to even work on here locally in my small town of Camden, Maine, with 5,000 people. I tend to be an optimist. And I think that the key for us to finding that nirvana of civil discourse is for more and more people who are in positions of power and authority to act with humility and to do things on a very retail level at the grassroots level. There's a lot of noise that's taking place down in D.C., up at the national, federal level, and all of that. And Erin, you and I can't fix that. But what we can do is when we have Thanksgiving with that annoying uncle who is talking about how January 6th was all a bunch of well intentioned people, trying to really come into the conversation with a notion of humility, wanting to try to understand, and trying to build bridges. Because if we're going to do point counterpoint and be defensive, We're just going to keep on building that same old stuff, that same old animosity, and create and widen that partisan gap. It's going to take you and me really learning how to listen, listen more, talk less, try to seek to understand more, try to argue less. And I know that that might be very unsatisfying for people, but like so many other movements, you got to do it from the ground up and do it in those circles and spheres where you do have influence.
0: Yeah. No, no, I think that's fair. And it really does require a little bit of like prep and being meditative and taking deep breaths in anticipation of those things. Cause we're all human.
1: Yeah. But I think that if we want to see more civil discourse, we should probably be giving headspace to a lot more people and hoping that, you know, are you familiar with the headspace app?
0: Oh yeah, sure. Yeah.
1: But like just helping people become a little bit more intentional, learning how to take a deep breath and really approaching life in that sort of way.
0: So a little bit of a pivot here. One of the things I've always had a hard time doing, being on boards in particular, is asking people for money. Like it's not easy to ask somebody for their time, although it is easier than asking them for money. Do you have any tips or tricks? And if you do, this this podcast is going to go super viral. On how to be an effective, how to be more effective at asking for money from individuals. And by money I mean donations, grants, what have you.
1: The most important thing I found in fundraising, and I'll say this, I'm a reluctant fundraiser. I'm an introvert, and I hate asking people for money. Now that might seem really weird for someone You're
0: not an introvert.
1: <laughs> I totally am. I find no my energy way. from my my cozy couch and my books and all of that. But But truly, but I think that if, for me, what really helped was recognizing that to be a successful generator of funds, you're really inviting someone to enter into a relationship with an organization. The biggest mistake that anyone who tries to raise money can make is asking somebody to make a donation right here, right now. So if I were to ask you, Erin, hey, I'm doing all this important hostage work. Erin, can you write me a $1,000 check right now? You might feel a little bit uncomfortable because we haven't talked about that. So if you want to be an effective fundraiser, Invite someone to experience the mission. Perhaps it's going on a volunteer experience with you. Perhaps it's listening to a town hall where the executive director is talking about what the organization does. Invite the people that you want to ask money from to learn more about the organization, and then the ask will become more natural. I think that people get really tripped up because they think that they're going to have to go to all their friends and family and just start asking for money. Don't ask people for money on a first date. It's like asking somebody to marry you on a first date. It doesn't work. It doesn't
0: work. Yeah, I think I waited to the eighth date with Tessa, at least, maybe. I can't remember. But yeah, I think that's good advice. and, And it's hard because we can't look at it like we're just checking boxes. Like, I've got a target of 10 people and I need to raise money. Like, each one requires a strategy and a micro strategy and resonance between them and the organization, right? I think back to when I first got involved with GW. So I do a ton with GW since we graduated. I I was just on campus last week. And for almost 30 years straight, I go back at least twice a year and I I lecture in Professor Warren's persuasion class. I don't know if you ever had Professor Warren. He's an incredible person. He's retiring next year. And not only do I get back in my time, but originally when GW targeted, I use that word with a lowercase d, targeted me for fundraising as an alum, they're like, you know, just give it to this general fund. And I said, I don't want to get, I'm sure there's a lot of great that comes from giving to a general fund. So the first thing is it, I did is actually I gave, this is years ago, I directed my, this is like a thousand dollars or something to my fraternity to help, you know, offset dues for kids who want to belong. But unfortunately you have to pay dues to belong to a fraternity because they have expenses too. And that was fine. And then over the years, when the school meeting public affairs came to me, we came up with this idea. They really, I credit Frank Sesno, who's the former director of SMPA with us, where I found like internships very, very powerful, as you did too, I'm sure. Yet so many are underpaid or unpaid. So I directed my funds every year towards giving students stipends so that they don't have to pick an internship that pays. They have to pick an internship that actually relates to their passion in life. And then we'll pay them so they can eat and they can they have a place to, to sleep for the couple of months over the summer. So to me, the way GW approached me to say, well, what's important to you, not just the institution, but what is it that GW gave to you that you want to be able to give back to other kids in the future to help them? That made sense. And therefore writing a check didn't feel like writing a check at all. It felt very, very natural. I think that's, I think part of the, what is what you're saying in terms of relationship building and making sure that it resonates.
1: Yeah, no, that's absolutely spot on, Erin. And I think that smart nonprofits do that. They actually invest and their relationships with individual donors and prospects and think about what is it that this donor wants? And rather than if I'm a nonprofit, I'm just going to slam you the whole bunch of messages about why we're great and why I should pay attention. Donors are going to shut that off because we're all fatigued by all of the people, all the nonprofits who've got all of these messages. The smart ones that are really successful are those that are putting themselves in Aaron Quicken's shoes and saying, what's really going to prompt Aaron to support the organization in a long-term sustained way. I mean, mind you, there are nonprofit organizations that do make quick hits. Think about that, you know, water bucket challenge that took place a while ago. I wonder how many of those people still have long term sustained relationships with, you know, the Alzheimer's Association as a result of that. Smart organizations are really investing in those longer term relationships.
0: I think it was ALS, right? Not oh, yeah. Alzheimer's. Yeah. ALS. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. So it's so funny because people I'll often take a look at a company or an organization an individual, and I'll be like, "Well, they donated for the wrong reason." But is there ever a wrong reason to donate? I mean, even if they're doing it because they have to, they feel compelled, they feel pressure to do it, it's still a donation, and it's still dollars that are going to work towards a good cause. So I used to be like a little bit more skeptical, a little bit more jaundiced about sometimes some of these donations, but. Well, I just want to get to one other, this might be a little inside baseball, but I do think for anybody who is serving on a board or thinking about serving on a board, this notion of a give-get has always kind of troubled me, only in that it is a troubling, controversial topic. So just, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, just for our listeners, a give-get is a requirement that if you're going to be nominated to and voted onto a board, a nonprofit or non-for-profit board. There's some sort of a minimum. You either have to donate—I don't know—I'm just making up—twenty-five hundred dollars over the year. So you give it, or you have to go get it. You have to find others, and that goes towards your commitment. And I understand the reason why we do this, and many boards do this, is because if you have twenty board members and each is, you know, required to give two thousand dollars, then then you've already every year you know in your budget, which is can you can be a struggle to generate revenue that you've got forty grand just from the board you know, every year, either through Give, Get. Do you feel like every board should have a Give, Get component? Even if it's small. I mean, I'm not saying it has to be $2,000 a year. For some, I know it's $100,000. For others, it's it's $500, right? So Maybe
1: this will be a little bit of incitement for controversy here, but I would say absolutely wholeheartedly, there should be a Give, Get. Every nonprofit should consider what that is. Does it have to be a certain dollar level? I'm not sure. I've worked with clients who have said to their board members, make a stretch gift or make a personally meaningful gift. But one of the most important roles that board members play is in setting the organization's culture of philanthropy. Generally, the people who serve on a nonprofit board are those who are most committed to the mission. Because- Let's face it, you see the good, the bad, the ugly, you see the financials, you have all of the inside information, but yet you still go to those board meetings month after month and are still showing up. And if an organization's board is doing its work, those board members are asking their networks, their colleagues, their friends for gifts. And it is a little awkward if a board member is going to their friend, asking that friend for money, and that friend says, Hey, Aaron, I'm thinking about making a gift, but I'm not exactly quite sure what that gift should be. How much do you give? And if you say, "Oh, I don't," you kind of feel like a tool, right? So I think nonprofit organizations are preparing their board members very well for that important, critical fundraising role by asking board members to make a gift because if they're out there advocating on behalf of the organization, they've got to be all in and In my opinion, nobody should be serving on a board unless they are all in. We all get invited to do stuff all the time. But unless you're willing to invest all of yourself, your time, your talent, and your treasure, don't say yes to that board. You've got to really be all in to make it be meaningful.
0: Time, talent, and treasure. I totally agree with that. And it's so interesting on a couple different boards that I'm on how. There's some very strong reactions to give get. But I mean, I'm with you. I do think it should be a thing. Is it possible to make it impactful if you didn't put a number on it? Like if you just said, I know it sounds very silly, but is it a toothless tiger to say, hey, Diane, to join this board, there's a give get. The give get is zero, but you need to do something. That doesn't make sense, right? Because I've seen that as well.
1: But I think that sharing statistics, I've seen a number of organizations do this very cleverly, where they will share information about donor's gifts, not ascribing it to a specific name, but showing the wide range. This is just generally what people are giving to the board. It gives people a sense of accountability that, yeah, we're paying attention to this, that we're totally paying attention to this. Hey, Erin, I know that we have been doing a lot of talking, but I do want to circle back on one point that you made that I really want to make a fine point of. And that was the notion of what motivates people to give. And you were talking about sometimes being a little cynical about, you know, why people are giving if they're forced to give or whatnot. I got into a little bit of a disagreement. I was doing a guest lecture about two weeks ago, and I was talking about the different motivations of why people give. And I think a lot of people, if you're not involved with this space, think that people give because, they're altruistic. It's the right thing to do. It's a better version of themselves. But to be completely honest, and you know this from your time in PR, there are a whole bunch of other different motivations. People might be seeking power or a sense of agency. People might be seeking a sense of recognition. That's the reason why there's so many names on those buildings throughout GW. You know, people want that recognition. Or people want to affiliate with others who are of a like mindset. And I think that nonprofits need to set aside this notion of being pure, but really tapping into what motivates people to give. And let's just be completely honest about it and just say, a lot of us give because we're complicated people. And while generally we want to do the good thing, there are other factors that come into play. You know, maybe I do want to be recognized and that's a okay.
0: It's just so interesting. I just, I finally finished Dope Sick. I don't know if you've seen it yet.
1: No, i've seen a couple of episodes but i haven't seen it consistently
0: i mean it's great to see michael keaton back again because i can't remember the last time i saw him acting it is and for listeners who don't know it's on hulu and it basically chronicles the purdue pharma and the sackler family and the opioid crisis and not just them but also the fda and how the fda also had a role in being complicit in killing so many people and creating so much addiction to opioids But it just brings back the thoughts of, you know, giving and the Sackler family had built many buildings and gave a lot globally, and others as well. And at what point does that money or does that family probably become tarnished? And does it actually obfuscate the goal of why they did what they did? Now, one could argue the Sacklers gave because it was for power, and they're trying to buy their way into uh, humanitarian causes or at least the peer to so they can get more of their drugs passed or drugs approved. Excuse me. I don't know. I don't think it's that simple, but I do. It is so complicated as to the reason why an individual or a company is necessarily doubling down or giving toward, you know, towards a cause. Cause sometimes it is for commercial gain, but other times it is not. It is because that CEO, they have a personal passion, you know, be it, immigration reform or whatever it is, right? So it's just interesting to kind of see this play out. One thing I will say is the fact that issues like these are no longer third rail issues for companies warms my heart because I am seeing far more ESG and giving and impact activity and prioritization at the board level and at the investor level than I've ever seen before. But I, I just want to end on one quick thing, because I think it's so important. and We never talk about it enough. You touch on it in your book. This notion of the reward that goes back to the giver, whether that person's giving you know, money, time, expertise, network, whatever it is. I'm sure people look at me they're like, you're a sucker. You do a lot. That has nothing to do with monetizing you know, your career. And others who really understand me know that I actually, selfishly, not only feel like I've given a lot, but I actually get so much personally from being involved in things that are greater than me and are so important. If you can just touch on that a little bit, because there's no greater reward than being able to donate your time, your efforts, your knowledge, your expertise. And we all have so much of it. We don't even realize how much we have.
1: hmm mm-hmm. I think it's just being open to Whatever comes about as a result of that engagement. And I remember when I was still living in Washington, I used to volunteer with a homeless organization, and there were kids that we would take to these different outings. And I remember thinking, oh, this is great. We're helping kids, we're getting them out of the shelter. Isn't it wonderful? And there was this one little boy who really latched on to me. And I've got to tell you, he worked his way into my heart and I don't have biological children, but what he was able to do in terms of showing me what his experience was, the sense of trust, the sense of just here he was having like this really horrible time, but yet was so happy, was such a pure feeling. And here I was, and you know, I Think a little bit about this notion of privilege, thinking here I was swooping in and giving this kid this great time. That little boy taught me so much about the importance of joy, being present in the moment and recognizing that, yeah, the world can be really, really screwed up, but you got to find where that joy is in order to keep on waking up day after day after day. So that was a pretty important lesson.
0: Yeah. Well, and this whole privilege thing also kind of goes along with white saviorism, which is, I think it is a thing, but it's probably also overstated because so the last thing we want to do is discourage anybody from donating or giving their time to a cause that's bigger than and greater than them or helping communities that or individuals who live in the margin or who are in need, you know? And I do think that that sometimes obfuscates the efforts that we all put into this. But I, I hear what you're saying this weekend, me and my wife and my daughter and a few other families, we just something called Midnight Run, where we go into the city, it's through our temple, starting around 7 p.m. We end usually around midnight, where we set up food stations at different homeless shelters, as well as provide clothing to people in need. And it is hard. It is really, really hard. You also realize how many people who are in need Have much greater needs than just the basic needs of food and shelter. Many of them have mental health issues and cognitive issues, or they're neurodivergent and they're not getting help in that way either, unfortunately. And it becomes this like vicious cycle because we can give them their basic needs, but they also have another basic need, which is cognitively being able to understand how to better care for themselves. And that's really hard to see. But having said all that, You know, even though I'm a little sad when I walk away and we've done this several times now, I also feel really, really good in that even a little bit of a difference could actually make a huge difference. You just don't know. You just don't realize.
1: And what's so beautiful about what you said is that for people like you and your family who are doing the hard work of working with people who have these issues, we've got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, you're not a trained mental health provider, but sometimes when you are interacting with different populations, you don't know how to have the perfect answer for them or how to band-aid them up, but that's okay. I think the most important thing, the most important outcome of any sort of philanthropic act is connecting with someone and having someone who you engage with say, I know that you see me and I see you. And that's really the core of what philanthropy is all about.
0: Well, that is a beautiful way to end it, Diane. And I feel like we're at the Marvin Center just virtually, just going back 30-something years ago and talking about starting it. Maybe we will start a nonprofit together still. It's not too late.
1: Hey, I think Lamar Alexander's still around, you know.
0: <laughs> is he, though? I think he is. He might be. He's got to be in his 80s, though. He's got to at least be in his 80s.
1: There are a lot of guys still kicking it, though. You know, you never know. Hopefully that'll be yeah. us one day.
0: Well, yeah, I was just reading, Henry Kissinger has a byline of, he's one of three on an, a book about AI. I'm like, listen, Henry Kissinger is is an unbelievable force in, in history and in politics. People have different views on, you know, his role in a lot of different kind of world events. I'm not going to get into that, but I'm like, did he really write that book on AI? I mean, he's 98 or something like that years, I don't know what he is, but like, it's incredible. It's absolutely May we be incredible. So lucky. May
1: we be so lucky. Yeah.
0: It's so it's so great to reconnect. I do feel like this all comes full circle. Congratulations on what I think is a great book. Again, for our listeners, it's called For a Good Cause, A Practical Guide to Giving Joyfully by Diane Lebson, L-E-B-S-O-N. I know you chose guide, but I think it's more than a guide. It really is a very thoughtful, quick, and easy, and understandable, and digestible, non-threatening read. It's not intimidating, I guess is what I'm saying, because a lot of this stuff can be intimidating. I think the way you broke it down, it's for every person, which I have not seen yet. So it's just so great to have you on the show and to be able to provide this gift to our our listeners. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Aaron. And keep on doing good things. You're doing good stuff. This has been an episode of Brand On Purpose with Aaron Quickin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host
0: at aaronquitkin.com.